Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to read. We're going to end tonight uh, reading about the life of Abraham. So we have come from the beginning of creation through the spread of humanity, through the judgment of humanity, through all the way from Noah to the Tower of Babel to the spreading out of the languages of the world. And we pick up a story that is the beginning of the nation of Israel and the promise of God coming to us uh, that are here and alive today. So I'm excited about it. Let's jump in. I'm just going to read. You can follow along. New Living Translation, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I'll show you. I will make you, verse 2, into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord has instructed, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and all of his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran and headed for the land of Canaan. And when they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. And there he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the area was inhabited by the Canaanites. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who, hap- who, had, ha- who had appeared to him. And after that, Abram traveled south and set up camp at the hill country with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. And there he built another altar, dedicated it to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord. And Abram continued traveling south through the Negev. Here's what I want to talk to you about tonight uh, in Genesis verse 12, or chapter 12. It says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and green, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing to others and I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you. I will curse. How many of you think this is a pretty powerful dude? Whoever curses you, I'll curse, but you'll be a blessing to all peoples on the earth, and they'll be blessed through you. As we pick up this thought and get ready to end, we're going to be looking at the pattern of God's blessing and how this is going to play out to us today and ending tonight with a conclusion of what I believe the entire narrative of the book of Genesis is about, that as you continue to study it may open things up to you. Abraham begins the narrative of, here here they are, a new country, a new people, a new household, and a new nation. And from this wisdom will come God's blessing on the entire human race. If we go back and look at all of the stories that have been told, we start out with a husband and a wife in a garden. We start out with a household, a husband, a wife. We start out with a family, Cain and Abel. We start out with a home. We start out in the Garden of Eden. And so God has always started this thing with a house, with a family. And God has always been moving that people, that house, and that family into the nation. I want us to understand that one of the worst things that can happen to Christians is we become introverted and we make God only about us. We make make prayer only about us. We make coming to gather together only about us. And we lose sight that from the beginning of time, it has always been 
God is trying to move His glory into the nations. So after we go through the destruction of all humanity and Noah's children come out, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they scatter into the Tower of Babel, and then the Tower of Babel happens and all the nations scatter. As we ended last week, we said this, that all of these nations scatter out with these different languages. So at the Tower of Babel, God confounds the languages of the world. He says that he puts bounds on them. He sends them into different parts of the world. And they all begin to travel together speaking the same language. And then chapter 12 is interesting because God picks a man up. And out of this man, God is going to create a new country of people, a new nation of people, and a new household of people. They'll be given their own language. And God will deal with them in a very unique way. That out of all the nations and people of the earth... God does something unique that he picks one man and says, out of one guy, I'm going to bless everybody through this one person. It shows us that even though God had to deal with Adam and Eve and deal with Noah's generation and deal with the Tower of Babel, the bottom line is that God's plan of redemption for every nation and every human was never thwarted. He was always working something to pull someone out to create a nation for him. I want to look at the pattern of God's blessing, though. There's four things we're going to look at to try to understand what God is doing. And I I called it a pattern of blessing because many times we say things like this, like, "I, I want to be blessed by God, but maybe true, He blesses us by mercy, He blesses us by grace, but God blesses through this pattern, this way that God intends his blessing to flow to us. And at first I brought out the household, the word household. And so one way blessing happens is that you become in relationship with other people. God uses people to bless you. He says this in Luke 6, 38. He says, give and it will be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. And the King James says this. I love the way it puts it. Shall I cause men to give back to you? So one thing about blessing is God, I'm not saying he can't bless you as an individual isolated in your home by yourself in a closet scared to appear in public. He's God. But his intention and his pattern is he wants you blessed in relationship. He wants you to come into relationship with other people. The problem with that is it's risky. Anytime you add another person in the mix... Eve was added into the mix. What happened? It became risky. Why? Because she ate the fruit and they lost the garden. They have Cain. Not that big of a deal. But when you add another son into the relationship, it becomes risky. Anytime there is an addition into the relationship, risk incur. And so one of the things that we find ourselves in today is God tries to put us into a family of people, into relationships with people, but it's very risky. Somebody will hurt your feelings. Somebody may gossip about you. Somebody may stab you in the back, maybe even stab you in the front. Forget to call you. Make a promise and not follow through. Let you down. Disappoint you. Every bit of that is intended to happen because even in the worst things of relationship, it is a test of your faith to grow your faith. And so what we need to know is that this pattern of blessing, there's going to be a risk of you having to get in relationship with people. And I believe this. I, you know, you can 
land where you want to land your plane. But I believe the longer you stay with the people, the more blessed you become. Because they know your garbage, you know theirs, you know their weaknesses, they know yours, and you become better at fighting together rather than fighting each other. And we become stronger together. There's something to be said when you go to the same house of God for 30, 40 years with each other and you see your children grow and your grandchildren grow together and you share the stories and you go through each other's failures as well as successes. We clout for you when you succeed. We cry with you when you have sorrow is what Corinthians says. We weep with those that weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Well, God established this that when he picks this guy up in a household, God is trying to create a house of people in relationship with each other. Here's a scripture I'll give you in John chapter 121, speaking about a household and the power thereof. He said that Jesus himself, first and foremost, came to his own house, the house of Israel. He came to his own people. He came to his own, but his own wouldn't receive him. The Bible says that God sent, even Jesus himself said, look, I didn't come for you Gentiles. I came for the Jews and the Jews only to redeem them. But they rejected him. Here's another scripture, the household of God, Ephesians. And this shows you even how it applies to us. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of what? You're members of his household. So this thing we call church, this building that we are in, and we call it church, the way God looks at this group of people is you're part of his house on planet earth. You're a group of people that he considers as a member of his household. And so God intends that out of this are going to come the blessings. Inside this relationship of the people in this house are going to come the blessings of the Lord. We pray with you, we stand with you, we push you through, and we, we run the race together. The second one is, he said, you're going to leave your people. It's strange if you go read Abraham because it seems like he took his people with him. He was supposed to leave them, but he took Lot with him. He was supposed to leave everybody behind, but he took them all with him. But what God is trying to do is God is trying to create a new household, the Israelites. He's trying to create a people and community. He says, out of you, Abraham, is going to become a community of people, a nation of people. If you know the story of Abraham, he's very confused. How could that be? I'm, I'm barren. My wife is barren. We're too old to have a kid. And God says, no, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to really develop relationship inside a community. Again, you're not just intended to do life alone. God wants you in a community with people. Why does he want you in community with people? If we fast forward through the Old Testament, what we find is out of this relationship of individuals called Jews, there comes this community of Jews where they're divided up into different tribes and different places. Why is God doing this? Why does God want us in community? Because it's in community that we best express the life of Christ to those that are watching. It's in community where we understand forgiveness. It's in community where we display the love. It's in community where we display forgiveness and the world watches on and we're supposed to be uh, displaying this as we fast forward toward the church. But this is God pulling a man out to create a household and a people. Here's Peter. Shows you it still goes on today. But you are what kind of people? You're a chosen people. You're royal. You're a holy nation. And I love this because this is really what's happening with Abraham. 
He said, you are my special possession. In other words, the moment God reaches out and calls Abram, he becomes God's special possession. God has this very unique relationship with Abraham. So unique is the relationship with Abraham that Paul will say in Romans chapter 4, Abraham is the father of faith to anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. The man we're reading about right now is the father of everyone's faith. He is the father of faith. He laid footprints out. This is the first man we know of in the Bible that is going to teach us how to live this life of faith. And do you ever think, I, what is faith? I don't understand. Just go all the way back, Genesis 12, and start reading about this guy. This guy will teach you what it means to live by faith. And so God picks him out. Why? Because just like Adam, God wanted a special possession. God wanted a very unique, and I'll say this about God. God is not just looking to be some guy with a big stick. He's looking to possess. He's looking to live in you. This is the New Testament. He lives in us. He possesses us. We become his temple. So as he picks out Abraham, he's picking Abraham as his special possession. So Abraham, although we're in the New Testament talking about the church now, so Abraham could declare the praises. And he says in verse 10, once you weren't a people, but now you are the people. God has always been looking for a people to declare his praises. He's all, which is weird. You would think that God could declare his own praises. That God could just show up in the sky and go, here I am, I'm God, praise me. But the way God has established it, it it's just strange because you'd look at people and think, why would he choose people? He chooses people to declare his praises. That's a risk in and of itself. A holy God chooses an unholy people. A righteous God chooses an unrighteous people. An eternal God chooses a, 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 a people that is, that is mortal and says to that uh, risk, uh, unforgiven, unrighteous, unholy, mortal people, through that I'm going to display my glory. So that I'm going to display glory through an unrighteous, unholy people that have no business with me, but I'm going to such cut a covenant with them that I'm going to call them my own possession. It's the beauty of what God is trying to do through Abraham. Here's the far reaching is everything we read about Abraham is going to reach all the way into what God is really working as the church. We are going to be that testimony to the world. Here's the pattern, but God's got a chosen people in community. The next is, he said, leave your country. And you're going to go to another country. And he tells him the borders. He said, here are the borders of the country that I'm going to give you. Look as far as you can see because that is the borders of the country. And by that, what I think he means is this community of people that's going to come out of Abraham. They're going to speak a unique language. They're going to speak Hebrew. They're going to begin to become the language of Judah, it will be called. It will be the Hebrew language. God is going to choose this people to be in community. They will travel together. They will settle in a land together. They will speak a language together. They will worship one God together. And so this country that Abraham leaves is that God is bringing out a community of people. So in this whole thing, God is looking for a community of people who are in relationship with each other and with him who all speak a common language. And I think we know where that's going to go. John 8, listen to this. This is interesting about language. And I won't belabor the 
the thought of Acts 2 again. You belong, Jesus said, to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. This is interesting. For he is a liar and he's the father of lies. So now what God tells me about this issue of language, this issue of language is it's not just the language of Hebrew, which we would easily say, well, it's just the Hebrew language. Is it what God is doing is he is establishing a community of people who have the language of the promise. And the promise is going to be the language of God. By the time we get to the New Testament, Galatians 3, we will find that we ourselves are called children of the promise. So the language that God is going to establish in this group of people who are Hebrews, who are going to come out of Abraham and become the nation of Israel, they're going to be people that are in covenant with God because he's made a promise with them. And so now what we understand is there's this family of people on planet earth that are, that are representative of God, who live by His promise, and there's another group of people down here whose language is the lie. And the promise and the lie, the family and the family, will fight each other all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, and even to this day. And if you want to know what the real battle is internally, it's the promise versus the lie. It's what God said and what God promised versus what you think is going on and what is real. So the scripture is that what we're looking at is a new language. And then the language of community is this final thing. He says, I'm going to make you into a nation. That language of people is going to become a kingdom. They will be known as the people of God. By the time we fast forward into the book of Joshua and they're at the, you know, Jericho and they're marching around the wall, Rahab the harlot says, this is my translation, that your, your reputation has preceded you because we already know what your God did to the Egyptians 40 years ago before you ever got here. Can you imagine something so powerful that 40 years later they're still talking about what the God you serve did? And that's a whole message in itself. But God has come to establish. So when he picks Abraham, this is what he's doing. He's looking for a people, a house, a country, and a nation. He's looking for people in relationship and a community that speak a common language. And out of that common language, they move into the kingdom. Here's a thought about how God thinks about kingdom. How God um, not just thinks individual in relationship, but God thinks corporately. And once you grab hold of this, it begins to impact how we do this thing called church. Because the way we typically look at church is a religious organization that I can join and if I like them, I'll stay. If I don't like them, I can leave. The way God views it is God views, this is my thought, thinking behind it, God views the corporate anointing together to be even more powerful than just you alone individually. That together there is a corporate power so that we say this, well, I, I think I'll just stay home on Sunday and just watch it online. Great. You can learn. You can grow from it. You can listen to the service online. You can take notes and go, man, that was a great sermon. Did you hear what they preached? Wonderful. That's a good thing to do. I would encourage you to do it. However, there's something very unique 
corporately, when the body gathers together corporately, that you get here that you won't get in bed watching a video. I don't even know how to explain that. I'm not saying that God can't touch you on a bed watching a video. Of course he can. He is God. But the way God establishes the pattern of his kingdom is there is an anointing that comes when the body gets together corporately that is by far different than you sitting at home. And it's how you can come to a gathering and it, it's just a church service. But you walk in and you're just sitting there going, and then all of a sudden, somebody stands up and says, I just feel in my heart that God has a word for somebody. And the Lord is, and all of a sudden you go, oh God, that was me. In that moment of that time when you could have stayed home, would God have still said it? I don't know. But I do know that there's something strange in the anointing that happens when we gather together corporately. So anytime you get out of bed, anytime you wake up and raggle the kids together to come and let's just go do church. That, that thinking, it's Sunday, we go do church. That's great. We've all raised children. It is a challenge. But if you can ever get your mind to think that no matter how tired I am, no matter if I've wanted to put my kids up for adoption every Sunday, <laughs> if we show up, we are going to expect that in that anointing of that gathering of God's people, I am going to experience His presence greater than if I would have stayed home and I'm going to reap of that presence. I believe the entire Sunday morning experience would change if, if God's people showed up that way. Like, I believe something's going to happen because I'm with other believers who have faith. Well, to show you how powerful it is, not just a Pentecostal sermon... God says in Malachi, it's in the teaching of the tithe, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you do rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, look at verse 9, you're under a curse. How many of you are cursed? The whole nation. So here's, here's the thought of the way God thinks. We don't have time to teach on it, but go read the story of Joshua at Jericho. When Achan takes some of the stuff at the next battle because one little dude decided, I don't really care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. One guy, one, one guy caused the entire nation to lose the next battle and, I, and thousands of them died. So many died that Moses or Joshua backs up and goes, well, what just happened here? How could we lose this battle? We are God's people. We just destroyed Jericho. And now we're at Ai and this rowdy group of people has taken us out. And so he goes and talks to God. He's mad. He's like, God, where, where are you? And God's like, well, I'm still here, but you got a dude in camp that didn't obey me. Weird. And the one guy that didn't obey me affects the whole. And that is powerful. That, that just, it really brings you to think, I've got to rethink this thing we call modern church. Like one person affects the entire group of people. So that that means you could be sitting here and think, oh, now you're kidding. And yet come in the room with an attitude. 
Walk in the room bitter. Walk in the room gossipy, mad, hurt feelings, and sit down with your arms folded and think, well, I couldn't be impacting this place much. And the actuality is you could. One human can impact the entire anointing in a room. And so when we come, we have to come with God. I humble myself to you. I give my life, I give my feelings to you. I give my emotions to you. Uh, and just to show you again that how sometimes the few can impact the corporate whole of a nation, go to the children of Israel. Well, we went in to spy the land. Ten come back and go, ah, we can't do it. Ten guys, ten out of a three million. The attitude of ten people caused three million to miss a move of God for 40 years. So to think I can just show up to church and my attitude doesn't matter, my negativity doesn't matter, my it really does matter. It matters so much, I don't have time to go there tonight because I feel up preaching coming on. But, but, but the reality of the way God thinks about this corporate community is Paul says in Corinthians 11, the reason some people die young before their time and they're sick in their body is because they do not honor and they do not understand this corporate anointing of God's body. That's weird. I even called mom the other day. I said, this is such a weird thing. I've tried my best to understand it for all these years that the church, the body of Christ is so powerful that if we don't look at it from a worthy perspective and honor it, it literally can bring judgment of death and sickness on you. Come on, God. It should be the devil. It should be the... And who would ever want to think that the problems of my life, the things that I'm struggling with, may not be the devil, but very much my attitude of God's house and God's people. And all of this starts with Abraham. If those he blesses you, I will bless them back goes into a nation to say this, the next verse, 1 Peter 2, 9, we've already seen this, but I'll pull it out in blue, he said, you are a chosen people, and then this word, you're a holy nation, but it starts getting interesting, because he, and this is where I want to go tonight, and, and conclude the whole teaching of Genesis, he said, I've called you to declare my praises, and then this phrase, 1 Peter 2, 9, I called you to do this come out of darkness and into marvelous light. I've called you to come out of darkness and into marvelous light. Here's what I want to talk about as we get ready to wrap this up. Talking about the pattern of God's blessing. Here it is. Colossians 3, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In this one verse, I believe the entirety of the Bible, Genesis, and everything is summed up in one verse. I'll try to conclude by showing what I mean of what Genesis is trying to do with the other 65 books of the Bible. But in these two things, what we're going to hold on to is darkness, light, and the battle of a kingdom.
here's the thought. So I'm going all the way back to the very beginning. God's plan and purpose from the beginning of creation. That was Genesis 1. I think we spent eight weeks. The seven days of creation. The making of Adam in his image. The choosing of Noah to build a boat. And the calling out of Abraham has been for this reason. And I'm going to give you the reason. God's plan and purpose. So let's, let's just kind of wrap 12 chapters up. His plan for chapter 1, seven days of creation. His plan for creating Adam and Eve. His plan in choosing Noah for destruction of the world to save his family. And his pulling out of Abraham to make him a nation, a people, and a household that have a language of God to carry his praises. I want to run through the Bible. I'm going to give you lots of scripture. So there's not many thoughts left coming. It's just scripture to attempt to show you from the Bible what God has been doing all along. And my plan of ending this class is to get you to see Genesis and the rest of the Bible beyond just books of the Bible and devotional material, but as the mind of God revealed to us about the plan of God and what He's been trying to do all along. The thought of where we want to go is here. All along, I'll go back to this scripture and this thought. All along, what God has been up to is to deal once and for all with the dominion of darkness. God has been attempting from Genesis 1-2, and darkness covered the face of the earth. Remember that teaching. And the Spirit was hovering over the water. We don't even get into verse 2 that we don't already start understanding. Of course, we have 2020 to look back. But from verse 2 of Genesis 1, God gives us insight that he's going to take dominion over darkness. You know the story. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I want to walk you through the scriptures of what God is up to. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. This is why this is so important. God is what? God is light. And in him there is no darkness. What is attempting to happen is God is starting to take dominion over this realm of darkness where rebellion has been launched by Lucifer. And God is attempting to make himself known. Day one, let there be light. The first thing God did on day one was not the sun and not the moon. Remember, that's day four. The first thing God did was he inserted himself into the creation. He brought his nature back in. Let there be light. And light was. And darkness went. And God began to call them together. Here's the verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. And then this phrase. We don't even get two verses in. That darkness is covering the entire surface of the deep. How could darkness be covering the entire deep if God is light? Because light... Darkness had come, judgment had come, and here's what he said in verse 3. Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that it was good, 
and he separated and then this becomes my opinion the beginning premise of the rest of the Bible when God separated light from darkness everything in the Bible again just my opinion but I like it everything in the Bible revolves around this if you've ever thought what is the Bible about of course we'll say Jesus but every story Everything that God downloads to you is to simply give you an insight into the separation between darkness and light. Day one, light and darkness is separated. Adam and Eve come into the mix and what does he do? He separates them from the darkness. Do not eat that tree. Leave it alone. If you do, you die. What is he doing? He's separating, he's separating his possession. His chosen possession, he's separating them from this moment to where once they do it, everything about them becomes dark. They do it and darkness ensues. Cain comes in, Abel comes in, darkness ensues. It gets so bad that by the time we get to Noah, darkness is covering the mind of everybody. And the story of Noah is that God had to make a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what he says to Noah. For whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, what does it take to make a rainbow? It takes rain and it takes light. And he said, now that's going to come, but it's going to remind you of a covenant. In other words, even the story of Noah is set to show the difference between sin and righteousness, between light and darkness. So powerful it is, God says, when you look up into the sky and you see this thing, that is, that is a reflection of the light, of the prisms of light, you will know that on this moment, at this time, the reason I gave this rainbow is because I separated the wickedness of man from the holiness of God. I'm not going to get into the whole LGBTQ stealing the rainbow. But the reality of what's going on today in the church, in modern church, is that there is no more separation of darkness. There is a receiving of darkness and we call it love. There's a receiving of darkness and we call it acceptance. And yet in all of the church there's coming this, this wave of darkness that begins to infiltrate the people of God. And it's couched in love that we should just love. And I've been really researching this a lot lately. It's amazing how many churches across America have adopted the LGBTQ way, same-sex marriages, uh, ordaining trans, ordaining gays, ordain, which is, I mean, it's people, right? We do what we do. But in the reality of God, if we're not careful, what we do is God pulled out of people to be different. In other words, we are called born again because I may have been born gay, but the moment I'm born again, whatever I was before, I'm not that now. Can you be born gay? Well, sure you can be born gay. You can be born any way you want to be born, but the reality is the reason you're born again is because the moment you say Jesus and you become born again, you're no longer whatever you were. You're not just a better version of the old you. The old you it doesn't even exist. You are a new possession, a new woman, a new man in the righteousness of God, in the holiness of God called by His name. You don't even identify with your gender. You identify with who he says you are. But what, what happens is 
from the beginning of time, there's been this duality. There's been a duality between darkness and light. It's no different today. Here's the story of Noah again. God used Noah to condemn the world. He's using people. The story of Noah was God's way to show that dominion of light will take dominion of darkness. It's the whole point of Noah. The whole point of Noah is to get this across. I'm light and I have no darkness at all. I don't tolerate darkness. That's why I will close the door on the ark and you will survive because you're blameless in my sight. And every, So that's all he's doing. Every story through the Bible is light, dominion over darkness. And it may be in Daniel. It may, it may whoever we're going to pick to be the, the, you know, the object lesson of light taking dominion over darkness. And then God pulls out a guy and says, you will be light. Your name will be Saul, your head and shoulders above. And darkness sits on Saul to the point that Saul kind of goes down and becomes part of darkness. It's every battle in the Bible. It's every warfare. It's, it's, it's battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Abraham, I love this, traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Moreh in Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land and the Lord appeared to him. Here's a strange little passage in Genesis 12, 7. He says this, To your offspring I will give this land. In a casual reading, it really doesn't mean much. But what it's going to be is <laughs> so strange. God tells him this, but God's thinking thousands of years in the future all the way to the church. It's what I've said before, that, that God is not just haphazardly doing any story, any narrative of any person. He's working a plan to bring Jesus to be the head of the church. This whole thing, every story is to bring me to this thing called the church. The choosing of Abraham is to ultimately bring about the birth of the church. Here's what it says. This is Galatians 3. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to the human covenant that has been duly established, so in this case, it is. The promises were spoken to Abraham, and then this phrase, we just read it in 12.7. To his seed. Scripture does not say to his seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Amen. So now what we see is all the way back here at Abraham, when he looks down at this little fellow and says, Hey, I'm going to take you out of your people. I'm going to take you from your community, your language. I'm going to take you to a whole new place. You're going to be my people, my language, my community, my nation. My own special possession as he's doing this in the mind of God. All the way thousands of years later, as he's pulling Abraham making a promise, he's already thinking of Christ and the church. That's how powerful this is. The church just wasn't an afterthought. The church just wasn't Peter trying to do some religious thing and wear a big hat on his head with a long robe and a stick and, and declare offerings to himself and build cathedrals out of gold and have creeds and all the things we have in religion. What it was getting us to was Christ being the head 
over a holy people who were a nation in community, in relationship, speaking the same language who would show the praises of God. And what does darkness do? Darkness comes in and turns us into a building, turns us into denominations, turns us into religions, so that we really wonder, are we even declaring the praises of God to the world and in which we live? John 1, verse 5. Now that we're at Jesus, I'll show you that even Jesus was the battle of light and darkness. In the beginning was the Word. Sounds very familiar to Genesis. The Word was with God and the Word was God and He was with God in the beginning and through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. Here's where it gets really weird and deep and thoughtful. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If I only bring this into the birth of Jesus, it makes such an easy translation. Jesus is born into a dark time and he's the light of the world. But the thing that throws me is verse 2. He was there from the beginning and nothing happens except through him. Nothing. So long before, we taught this before, long before there was Christ in the flesh, there was Christ who was the light of life. My opinion is when God said, let there be light, he took the son of the living God, <laughs> although he didn't have flesh, but he took the wisdom of himself and the power of himself and inserted that into darkness and darkness had to flee. Because this is what we find. that It's Christ that is the light of men. So long before Adam came, man, long before there was a son, light, there was the in introduction of Christ into the realm of darkness. So that Christ's power and wisdom would be here before Adam ever showed up. So in thinking that God is already ahead of you at all times. And the darkness that's ensuing you right now is trying to do nothing more than to blind you from the reality of the power of God's wisdom working even when you don't see it. Get ready to wrap it up. Ephesians 5. Again, the entire narrative of the Bible is this light darkness. For you were once in darkness, Paul said, Ephesians 5, 8. But now you are what? Yeah, you're not just a Christian. You're not just a Baptist. You're not just a Methodist or a Pentecostal. You're not just some apostolic denomination. He literally calls you a beacon of light. Which is strange. Jesus will say it this way. It's easy preaching. You are the light of the world. But Paul says you are light in the Lord. Live, and watch this, as what? Children of the light. It almost sounds new agey, doesn't it? Like we're sitting around with crystals smoking something. <laughs> Children of light. I like being a Baptist better. I like a Pentecostal better. I don't like to be a child of the light because if I, if I claim to be a child of the light, then the fruit of my life must be goodness, righteousness, and truth. I don't like that. That's too much judgment. 
I, I like to be free. I like to be me. I like God to just love me for me and all my little quirky me-isms. And I like God to exist to make me a better me. And God said, no, you're not just you. You're a child of the light. And the child of the light produces these things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. So that now we understand the thought for those that may want to figure this one out. How in God's name could someone stand in front of Jesus and go, I've cast out demons, I've done miracles, I've done all these things in your name. And Jesus goes, dude, I don't even know you. I have no clue who you are, brother. Well, you would have to know me. I've preached in your name. I cast out devils in your name. I have worked miracles in your name. And he looks back at Mark and says, Mark, I don't even know who you are. Get out of here, you worker of iniquity. What? Worker of iniquity? I'm down here doing things in your name. Because what we understand is there's a big difference in claiming to be a Christian and being a child of light that consists of the fruit of light that produces all goodness, righteousness, and truth. My opinion of this. My opinion is when that person stands in front of God and goes, Yo, I'm here. And I have done all this stuff and got, now he, you know, looks normal. I've done all this stuff. I've even got my nice little hat on that says I was an apostle. I've got my 501c3 ministry that I've been doing in your name. And I stand in front of the God of all light and he looks down at me. And this is just my thinking how this is going to go down. When he looks at me, he sees darkness. Because my, my works are nothing but Darkness. My works are filthy rags. So he says, I don't even know you because it's light looking at darkness and the two never can be together. And so I think what's happening on that moment when they stand in front of God is light is looking into darkness and there's no commonality of light. There's no child of light coming back. There's nothing in them that consists of goodness. So he says this. This, this ought to really upset many a folk have nothing to do, nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. Nothing. That, that would literally like just get God canceled today. Have nothing to do with them. But I thought God just loved everybody. Have nothing to do with those of darkness. But expose them. And I'll tell you, the one thing darkness doesn't want is to be exposed. Let's leave God and the church out a minute. Just go to what we see right now in America. What you see right now in America is, okay, pedophilia over here and all the people that have bought into it. And then you see wickedness over here and the government's doing this and the, this doing this. And then right in the middle is this thing called the media. And then all the media does is just... Fake news misinformation. Fake news misinformation. Don't like what you say, you're canceled. I don't like it. Why? Because what we do start finding out, even without God, is that the best way for darkness to rule is to get rid of any hint of truth and any hint of light. Keep everything hidden. Now fast forward to the church. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And then this phrase, because what's happening is Christ is trying to shine on you. So go back to Adam. 
day six. He looks up and there's the sun and the moon. But before the sun, the bigger light, and the moon, the lesser light, behind that is another light. Day one. Behind all of that is the light of Christ shining. The wisdom and power of God shining. And he simply lost the ability to let his life shine because of Christ. And he goes after the tree. You know the story. Revelation. This is, shows you how powerful this battle of light and darkness is. It doesn't end with Adam and Eve. It doesn't end with Noah. It doesn't end with Abraham or any of the Israelites. It doesn't end with Jesus. The battle of darkness and light ensues with Jesus. The battle of darkness and light is still going on right now with the church. We battle darkness. We're to expose it. We're to be light. But here's the deal. Fast forward past us. Fast forward past this thing called the church and let's go all the way to the very end of it all. We start in Genesis with a battle. Now we're at the very end. We're in the last two chapters of Revelation. He says, I see a temple. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And the city doesn't need sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is the lamp. And the nations will walk by the light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. So now we're talking all the way to the end. We've ran the stories. We've killed off the people with floods. We've picked out a nation and called them Israel. We've given them the Ten Commandments. All along the way, there's this darkness trying to come against the people of God. There's battles. There's war. There's famine. There's disease. There's magic. There's gods. There's demons. There's, then there's the Son of God, but then there's a battle of darkness over Him to stop Him. And then there's the church, and there's a battle of darkness to stop the church. And now here we sit and God says, well, I want to tell you something. He said, at the very end, we're back to the same thing. The nations are going to walk by my light. And so powerful is this thought, there won't even need to be a sun or a moon. That's going to be mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. That when you live on planet earth and there's no need of sun or moon anymore because... God's glory is so bright that the entire planets need nothing but Him to shine. That's the power of what Lucifer's been trying to do. And the final verse of the Bible as we get ready to conclude it. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they'll see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. There'll be no need of lamp or light. Or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And now we see what happens when we live in the light. We reign. And perhaps the reason many of God's people are sick and weak today. Is we live in darkness rather than light. We don't reign. Here's the reason I gave you under the question. The reason is... Light will have dominion over darkness. Always. Chapter 1, verse 2. But not only that, Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning says it has dominion over darkness. But John chapter 1 says in the beginning light will have dominion over darkness. And Christ has dominion over darkness. But not only does Christ have dominion over darkness, the church is to have dominion over darkness. We rule and reign with them. The church is to be the light of God to the nations of the earth. 
We're to represent it. We're to bring light to people. We're to expose it. So all the way from Genesis 1-1 to John 1, all the way to Acts 1, in every place where there is the birth, Genesis 1 is the birth of creation, and it was a battle of light and darkness. John 1, it was the Son of God, battle of light and darkness. Acts 1, it was the birth of the church, the battle of light and darkness. God has been battling all along, and in between the three battles, the battle of creation of darkness, the battle of Jesus Christ in darkness, and the battle of the church in darkness, in between the humps of creation of the world, creation of God in the flesh, creation of the church, in those three worlds and realms of the kingdom of God in creation, the kingdom of God resident in Christ, the kingdom of God in His people, there's all these little stories of light and darkness. There's all these people that kind of give us an insight to what's going on. There's the Malachi's, there's the Jeroboam's and the Rehoboam's, there's the Paul's, there's the Eli's, there's the Elijah's, there's all the in between these three pillars of the Bible that we have. The three pillars of the Bible is the God of creation that has a people and a place in the entirety of the Old Testament. And then we have the Gospels. We have God against light and darkness in the person of Christ. Then we have the epistles. We have the kingdom of God in the church against the darkness. In every one of them, God is doing one thing. Take dominion over the darkness. And again, I go to what's going on. I'm going to leave you with two scriptures that I pray inspire you as we wrap up 29 weeks of Genesis. I think the verses I share with you pretty much sum up what I think the book of Genesis is all about. For the people walking in darkness, Isaiah will say, have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I think Isaiah not only speaks prophetically to the future, I think in some strange way even prophetically toward the past. That all along God has been looking for a people that would dawn the light of His glory and they've been battling darkness the whole time. Final scripture. And this is, if someone asks me to sum up the Bible... I'm going to attempt to do it in a verse. The God of this age, the devil, Lucifer, the rebellious one, the murderer, the liar, the language of the liar, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, those who don't belong to God, those who aren't his special possession. So they cannot do what? Go to church? Give their tithe and offering? So they cannot see the light. The light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who's the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves is your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, listen this is interesting. Who said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis 1. Made his light shine in our hearts. John 1. To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, Acts 1, displayed in the faith of Christ. The entire Bible, this is my summation of Genesis of 29 weeks. Genesis is the revelation of the face of Christ in these ways. 
In creation, the seven days of creation, we see the face of Christ. We took time to display that every day was a revelation of the nature of the wisdom and power of God in Christ. We see the face of Christ in people. For we will make Adam and Eve after our image and our likeness. And the devil steps in to destroy that. Because he has to destroy creation because creation declares the face of Christ. He has to destroy people because people declare the face of Christ. So God, weird, sent Christ in the flesh so we could see his face. And Lucifer took him out to stop his glory. So Christ arose from the dead and decided, well, the best thing to do is I will put me in you. And you will now be the face of Christ on the earth. I will put myself in you. You will become my possession. You will be my temple. And then Lucifer comes to destroy us. We become bitter. We become mad. We become rebellious, unbelievers. We become addicted and lustful and the darkness overtakes us. And we don't portray the face of Christ. And then he says, but not only that, is I'm going to dis display my face in community, the local church. The world will know my power with people who believe in me doing life together. And the devil steps in with darkness to destroy the church. Churches are folding every day. Churches are becoming riddled with, with lustful living and darkness ensuing. People are hurt and burned out and sick of church. Why? Because the devil cannot have us displaying the face of Christ. And all for one thing, God simply wants to be known in His glory and power. So if I sum it up, I'll read it. Genesis is the revelation of the face of Christ in the seven days of creation, in the creation of Adam and Eve, in Jesus coming in the flesh, in you being born again, and you being baptized into the church. All of it is the battle between light and darkness so now when you read Genesis, I would encourage you over the summer, what a great challenge, go back and read the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And as you read it, every story, every insight, I want you to read it in, there is a battle going on between light and darkness. I would encourage this, every chapter you read in the Bible, put in your head, somewhere in this chapter, there's probably a battle between light and darkness going on. There is another world you're reading in this world. There is another world out there that's fighting to blind the minds of people not to know the light of God. And that's the battle we ensue. And that was the reason God gives us the writings of Genesis. So that we could see His passion to bring us into a place to display the face of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. So Father, I thank you.